0: Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kai.
1: And I'm Elliot. We're
0: going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: Nice. Yeah. Okay. So this is another big week. We, you, were, you were still off work. I was not, but that didn't stop us from watching. I mean, we're going to cover six movies, but in the first week of January alone... Okay. So a little bit of a preamble. We watched around well i watched 300 i logged 300 movies for 2022 you were very close to that we've set a goal for ourselves for 2023 to watch 365 movies which if you don't know is a movie a day
0: <laughs> if, you don't know, if you don't know how many days there are in a year
1: <laughs> you silly um but we're off to a pretty good start so as of this recording it's january 8th and we've watched 11 movies this year so far so yes
0: but what we're doing to not make you all listen to 365 discussions is re-watching movies we've already covered mm-hmm. or watching movies specifically to do a deep dive on, which will be released at some point.
2: Yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, I, I think we're killing it so far. We're going to do it. it. We're going to do it. I believe in us. But we're covering six movies this week. Let's get into it. So it started off a lot of pressure first mystery movie pick of the year was on my shoulders and I wanted to watch something that just makes me really happy and the movie that I picked was Spider-Man No Way Home it's from 2021 it's an action-adventure fantasy it was directed by John Watts written by Chris McKenna and Eric Somers and based on the Marvel comic by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko it stars Tom Holland as Peter Parker okay here (laughs) here's the thing I want to give, before I go any further, a bit of a heads up. We are going to keep this spoiler free plot wise. We're not going to, we're not going to dig into it too deep as per usual, but we are going to talk about the cast of this film, which has a few surprises in it. So if you have been avoiding Spider-Man No Way Home and you haven't seen it yet, you and, haven't
0: looked at the poster.
1: Yeah. The updated posters and the, The majority of videos and trailers that are still going around released by marvel and sony themselves that reveal some characters if you've avoided all that wow you are just some sort of internet ninja but be this is our little friendly warning that we are going to be talking about some all of the cast in this film so if you want to avoid all that skip ahead to our next film and you'll be in the clear i will proceed (laughs) Wow. Um, so it stars Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man Zendaya as MJ Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange Jacob Batalon as Ned Leeds John Favreau as Happy Hogan this is a long cast list but I'm going through all of them Um, Jamie Foxx as Mac Dillon Max Dillon slash Electro Willem Dafoe the All Dad as Norman Osborn slash the Green Goblin Alfred Molina as Dr. Otto Octavius Doc Doc, Doc Ock Uh, Benedict Wan as Wong Marissa Tomei as Mae Parker. And then if, if you don't want to know anymore, this is your chance to step out. Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. So there's three Spider-Mans in this one. Synopsis. With Spider-Man's identity now revealed, Peter asks Doctor Strange for help. When a spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. Okay. That was a lot of preamble for this film. What'd you think of Spider-Man No Way Home? This is a special film for us, I feel.
0: Yeah, this is my sixth time watching it. and It's only been out for a little over a year.
2: Hmm.
0: That's a lot of times. Yeah. I think it's probably tied with Bo Burnham's inside for the most times watched of a recent film.
1: I've watched everything everywhere six times. But this is, Greg. I feel like this is top. Yeah, I think you're right. That's top three.
0: Well, I've watched everything everywhere five times. You've only seen Spider-Man five times. Yes. So we've got a little bit of a flipper Rooney there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about when we saw this for the first time.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: So I want to start by saying Marvel movies make us feel good.
1: And they did, especially during the pandemic.
0: And they did, especially during the pandemic. We've talked about that on past shows, but just they're pretty hopeful movies. Mm -hmm. like usually goodness wins and
1: there's a formula that's familiar yeah there's a familiarity
0: there's a comfort in that Mm -hmm. I also want to say that you and I are kind of joyous movie watchers we don't get a lot of fun out of being poo poo about movies yeah Um, so if we don't like Marvel movies we just won't watch Marvel movies but we're not going to get mad at anybody who likes them (laughs)
1: Yeah, and we also just don't go to movies that we don't think are going to be good or that we won't like or that people have said unanimously are really bad and we just want to go see them anyway. Like, we, we we don't go see stuff that we're not going to enjoy, typically.
0: We we try not to, yeah. Yeah, that's the goal. Um. So, yeah, Marvel movies make us feel good and for both... You and me, so Batman and Spider-Man are your two favorite superheroes. Spider-Man and Wolverine slash X-Men are my two favorite superheroes. So we have a lot of skin in the game with Spider-Man. Yeah. And we grew up on the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. Um, We watched watched the the Andrew Garfield Garfield movies. And I mean, I've had a crush on him since he's existed in the celebrity world. Um, So I liked those because I was in my 20s when they came out. So were you, but I don't know if you have a crush on him.
1: I mean, he's
0: beautiful. beautiful. So we, yeah, we like Spider-Man a lot and we've been engaging with Spider-Man media our whole lives. Um, And I'm not the hugest fan of Homecoming or... Far from home. Far from home. I like them, but I'm not like, oh yeah, they're amazing. And I don't find myself revisiting them very often. Mm-hmm. I do really like Tom Holland's Spider-Man in the Avengers movies and in Captain America Civil War, which was mm-hmm. his first appearance. Um, I have I found him really great in ensemble work, which therefore it's no surprise that I like him so much in this. But what's so great about this movie is I found that the ensemble cast lifted up Tom Holland's Spider-Man in such a way that I like him more, and I'm more invested in his story. One of the unique things that they've done with Tom Holland's Spider-Man, and I get why they did it, is they just started him already as Spider-Man, and we didn't get his origin story Mm -hmm. like we do in Andrew Garfield's first movie and Tobey Maguire's first movie. And I mean, with so many Batmans, with so many Spider-Mans, we've seen that origin so many times. Yeah. So spoilers for Spider-Man and Batman's origins if you don't know them. But we've seen Uncle Ben die a million times. We've mm-hmm. seen Peter Parker get bit by the spider a million times. We've seen Bruce Wayne's parents get shot and those pearls on the ground <laughs> a million times. Yeah. And so I think that there's this tough thing of what do you lose when you take that out? Mm-hmm. But also people are fatigued of seeing 10 million versions of this. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, yeah, great to not have that rehashed. But on the other hand, I think that maybe the stakes or Tom Holland's character didn't exist as much. Yes. Because we didn't see the struggle to become Spider-Man. It's just all of a sudden Iron Man shows up and he's he's like a great Spider-Man.
1: Well, it's introduced in this kind of very, isn't this fun? We're bringing Spider-Man in kind of way. Yeah. And you lose, yeah, you're exactly right. You lose the tragedy that drives him to be, to be Spider-Man and to be a
0: better version of Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. So I was we were really excited for this Spider-Man No Way Home. I mean, as soon as they, it was clear that the villains from some of the previous movies were coming in. Like when we watched that trailer where you see the, is it called a pumpkin bomb? Yeah. Like, and we were just like, oh, that is Willem Dafoe's cackle. Like it was so exciting. Yeah.
1: And then seeing in the first trailer scene, Alfred Molina show up as Doc Ock again. It was like, oh, this is going to be wild but immediately the conversation is like oh the other Spider-Mens are going to show up in this
0: yeah and i wanted that to be true and mm-hmm. we followed all of the um like digging on the internet where it's like oh it looks like somebody kicked lizard here and like they and they took him out that's got to be one of the Spider-Men. mhm it is yeah. um or You know, all of the theories about Mephisto and Doctor Strange, which I was really sold on. There
1: was a really hot minute there. It was like ridiculous to be a Marvel fan with all of the Mephisto conspiracies going on around the. uh, It's going to be Boy Who Cried Wolf.
0: Boy Who Cried Wolf when they finally do bring Mephisto in. We won't believe it's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Anyway, we, yeah, we just got really jazzed for all of these different versions of the Spider Man. Spider-Man villains that we've grown up with to all be on one screen together and with these actors that we really like and these performances that we really enjoyed in the past. Um, we, of course, had to be careful. But when we saw it, because I knew if we didn't see it on the very first day you could see it, I'd get it spoiled at school for me. Mm-hmm. Intentionally or not, kids were going to be talking about it. So we went and saw it um, at Landmark because Cineplex site crashed when we tried to buy <laughs> tickets.
1: I still I love that experience because the, as soon as the tickets became available, I mean, we were on it. I was on I was on my laptop ready to go. And Cineplex was just not working. It wasn't coming up. And I'm like, oh, man, like we're we're going to miss out on tickets. So I'm like, oh, well, let me check out Landmark. Got tickets. No problem. Um,
2: What did I say? Like,
0: Well, you got us heated seat special spot ones. And you're like we're going to be Adonises in a sea of (laughs) (laughs) plebs. Sounds like something my brother would say. (laughs) Turns out we were not because it was December and they had the air conditioning on the whole time and couldn't get it turned off. Ridiculous. Um, So the heated seats just kept us neutral. But (laughs) Yes. What was the experience of seeing this for the first time like for you?
2: This was
1: really, really special. And it's probably a movie... Going experience, I will never forget because this was the first big blockbuster film that came out during the pandemic. Where it came out at a point where things were starting to feel okay to go out. Like we had just started dabbling and seeing more and more movies.
0: I think it was feeling that way. And then the new strain came and it was like, as Worse than before, but it
1: came like two weeks later, is when it really started picking up traction, right? Like,
0: oh, I think there were some times that we thought about going to see it again and chose not to, yes, right?
1: But it was, it came out at like the kind of the perfect moment where things felt okay, and we were so excited for it. And that was the thing, too, is we were so stressed not only from trying to avoid any spoilers or anything that's cropping up online as soon as the embargo lifted on this but then also being like i really hope that COVID just the shit doesn't hit the fan and we are able to go see this when we
0: wanted when we wanted to go see it and of course like lots of people didn't because it still didn't feel safe like i have a friend who we didn't see this together until the spring yeah right so you know because of our risk profile with me teaching in a high school we felt like We'd go and pri- prior to that, we tried to only go see movies when we'd like look and see if like almost no one else was going. Mm-hmm. So we'd wait a couple of weeks and then go see when there was only like one or two other people in the theater. But we were like, no, we're going to we're going to go see this one. Yeah, and we did. Yeah, we did.
1: And it was so like as soon as you walked in and we we grabbed our seats, the, the energy was just electric. Like yeah, we palpable. like I feel like it, we were in a room full of people that hadn't been in a room full of people in a really long time. And there was so many Spider-Man stands. There was a a, a row of just this cute little friend group of girls that were in Spider-Man t-shirts and Spider-Man gear. And they were all just vibrating with excitement in front of us, which is just the energy that you want coming into this movie because we're everyone's so excited for it. And when certain moments happened throughout the movie there, we were all cheering. We were all clapping We were crying like it was just an emotional journey that was so much more fun to do that with a huge group of people so much so that we went and saw it the very next night after this just to re-experience that.
0: Particularly because when we saw it at Landmark, it was like a 35 seat theater or something like that. It's pretty small. And it was a Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. So we went and saw it in like the 150 seat sold out theater at Cineplex the next day because we wanted to really hear the cheers. Mm -hmm. um, And we did. Yeah, and it was really fun
2: yeah
1: that was that was our experience seeing it and it was it was it was so great so this film has just since then kind of just become comfort food I mean we saw it four more times you saw well I saw it three more times in the theater you saw it four more times in the theater one of the one of which was IMAX and each time, it was just more incredible. It eventually just, after seeing it so many times, it bumped it from a four and a half to a five because it's like, this is magic. Like, this movie will always make me happy.
0: Yeah, is it a perfect movie? No. Is it an objective five? No, but I love it.
1: Yeah, exactly. But in terms of the film itself, uh, I want to I just talk about this one thing. You, in the excitement leading up to us going to see it, you predicted something That would potentially maybe happen between all of the Spider-Mans should the other two Spider-Mans show up in this film. And you laid out this scenario for me. And I wanted to cry on the spot because I'm like, that would be incredible if they did this. Like, but I don't think in this big blockbuster movie, they're going to take the time to do what you've described. And they freaking did it in the movie. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. How did you do this? How did you predict this? Are you a writer for Marvel?
0: Well, i'd love to be paid like a writer for marvel
1: <laughs> but it's 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 one of the most <laughs> incredible scenes that i wouldn't expect to exist in this movie and it exist and it exists it's so great <laughs> yeah it's incredible but like as the film itself what do you think what do you think of the film
0: i get the critiques of it like a lot of people really love to Like I mentioned earlier, just poo-poo people who like Marvel movies or, particularly, this movie. Mm. Um, I have to say, as a high school teacher, these like teenagers love these movies. And what are we doing to their potential growing love of film if we tell them they have bad taste in movies? Like, I think that's ridiculous. Movie tastes change and shift and grow, and you know, there's movies I loved as a teenager that I don't love anymore, and movies I loved then that if I saw them for the first time now, I probably wouldn't. And I just, again, I love hearing why somebody loves a movie, mm-hmm. and I just, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth when it's about trying to tell someone that they're stupid for liking something. So yeah. what do I love about this movie? I mean, I've gone on the whole ride. Like, I we've seen every single of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, so we know the dynamic between Doctor Strange and Peter Parker. We know that he gets a little annoyed by Peter at times. We know that he's a bit of a like grouch. We know all of the history of the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. And we've been watching those our whole, whole lives and seen them many, many times. And colliding those together is just so fun.
1: Yeah. And like you said, being able to collide all of those worlds together and still be able to lift Tom Holland Spider-Man amidst all of it is
0: pretty impressive. Really impressive. Yeah. So it's. And, you know, for me, I've watched this movie six times and I cry in it every single Mm -hmm. time. And I can't say that about a lot of movies. There's some movies that they make me really emotional the first time. And then when I watch them again, knowing what's coming, it doesn't really hit. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I cry as hard as I did the first couple times, but I still cry every single time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about that. I think it's my attachment to the character of Spider-Man. I think that they did an absolutely impressively fantastic job of finally bringing in the stakes for Tom Holland's Peter Parker
2: Mm -hmm.
0: without doing a disservice to the films that have come before Mm -hmm. and while doing it in their own unique way that doesn't just rehash things. So I just, you know, I think it's really fun and I do think, you know, there's critiques of it just being like hollow and eye candy and I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think of what I find so impressive about the Marvel Cinematic Universe while being a little bit more disappointed in it recently, but hoping that perhaps this is just kind of the restart of the next kind of half of things and Mm -hmm. we're kind of having to get the origin story stuff out of the work before we can start intertwining and making big, overarching things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I've always said is this must be, be what it was like to love comics, like these comics when you were younger and read this comic and this comic and this comic and then have this special issue where they're all together. Yeah. Is it the most literary amazing stuff in the world? Probably not. Is it a whole hell of a lot of fun? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think that's what's recreated on the screen and that is so amazing. And, you know, when you get into a theater... And everybody's excited to be there, and Andrew Garfield shows up, and people are cheering and whooping. And, you know, afterwards, everyone's just buzzing to talk about it. I don't know how that isn't a great thing. Yeah. And we can love this and then turn around and love After Sun just as much. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those two things negate each other.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, like, that's, I agree with everything you said. And, I mean, there's a a moment in the final act that involves all three Spider-Mans that will always make my heart swell and make me so happy.
0: Yeah, I think I turned to you when we were watching this, again, the sixth time in barely more than a year. And I said, this part just makes my heart feel so good every single time I see it. Yeah. And that might be a thing that's specific to me and you and a whole lot of other people. And, you know, others are just like, oh, it's just a marketing ploy. And that is fine, but yeah. it makes me feel really good.
1: Yeah, it works really well, and you know, and and to just kind of add to something that you've said of the way that this film ends. I mean, I feel like the ending of this movie is one of the biggest game changers in the MCU in regards that it changes and alters my opinion of the previous two Spider Man movies mm-hmm. in the MCU, and actually heightens them because um, you mentioned at the beginning, and I echo those feelings that. Homecoming and Far from Home don't really hit the mark for me as much. Um they're they're fine and I didn't I I don't love them though. This movie makes me like them more. Mm-hmm. But also it also changes all of the it it, it changes the way I kind of look at Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man movies mm-hmm. and even the way I look at Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man movies. Like it does a lot of heavy lifting in its storytelling to be able to alter these things I loved when I was a kid and then alter the things that have come more recently. Um, and I think that that's a testament to really good storytelling. That isn't just eye candy marketing, blah, 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 you know, like it's smart and clever and you can tell that there's care there and it's not all like, I mean, you could just have the the other two Spider-Men show up and be like, need some help kid. And then they're in and then they're out and that's it.
0: And people would be super happy about that. Yeah. Because they wouldn't, see any other version of this right Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that I really like about this movie is they have a love and affection for all three versions of
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Spider-Man while also being able to like laugh at some of the more ridiculous parts of it Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of kind of meta discourse about Andrew Garfield Spider-Man not being as good Mm -hmm. and yet there's still a lot of love for him and his character in there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really sweet way to go about things. And I can totally see how if you just don't love Spider-Man, <laughs> this <laughs> wouldn't work for you. Yeah. And so I think that's where some people get you know critical of the film is if it if it wouldn't work unless you have seen and love everything else, is it really a good film on its own? And I think that's a fair conversation to have. But for me personally, it really works. It makes me really happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, it works really well. Um, And
0: it moves. Like, it's long, but it moves and it's mm -hmm. fun. And as the resident, I get bored of action sequences person. There's only a couple moments that I kind of am like, eh, I could do without. But they're pretty few and far between and they're pretty short.
2: Yeah.
1: And I I think that they're really compelling and have stakes on the plot as opposed to just being kind of like punch him up whatever kind of scenes yeah but also you know you kind of mentioned that they show that there's this love for not only Tom Holland and the MCU version of Spider-Man but the previous two iterations of Spider-Man and I think that that comes through in the villains like Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina's characters like there's for sure highlights of the film but it feels like they're ripped right from the 2000s with their dialogue and the and the way that they kind of Go about the their villainry,
0: <laughs> and there is some disappointment in what clearly was how the pandemic impacted shooting, because mm-hmm. it seems like Lizard and Sandman might have had more going on mm-hmm. had there not been a pandemic, because it' their CGI the entire film, <laughs> yeah, Um and their non CGI parts are taken from their previous movie. So it feels (laughs) like they just did voice acting. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of that, you know, it's hard to unsee once you know it's there. But what is always so impressive to me is when you do something like this so far after the fact and everybody agrees to sign on to it. And sure, money might be a part of it, but if Tobey Maguire really, his principles said, I don't want to be Spider-Man again, then he wouldn't be Spider-Man again, right? And if Willem Dafoe was like, I don't give a shit, he wouldn't do it. And so there's something there about how all of these people came back to to do this. Mm -hmm. And like Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina particularly crush it.
1: Yeah, they're I feel like they're acting above their pay grade. Like they like they came here turning in performances and moments that are some of the best that exist in any superhero movie. Yeah. Um, even Jamie Fox, he gets some of the best lines
0: yeah it's really there's some there's so many moments that yes they hit harder if you know what they're referencing or you know the other films and we re- rewatched all of them leading up to it because of course we did mm-hmm. um, also we were just at home because you know pandemic but yeah it is this movie just makes me really 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 happy and we could probably talk about it forever but we have five other <laughs> movies to talk about <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we yeah. shouldn't
1: yeah uh, I love this movie. I'll watch it over and over and it'll, it'll always make me happy. How does it make you feel?
0: It makes me feel thrilled every time I watch it and also just really comforted.
1: Yeah, I agree. It, uh, it makes me feel just so grateful that it came out when it did and that it exists at all. Because mm-hmm. uh, it took a lot of pretty incredible universal powers to make everything come together the way that it did. And to have it exist is incredible. Okay. Let's get to your mystery movie pick. Your first mystery movie pick of 2023.
0: I went in a different direction because I felt like we had watched a lot of, what did I say, white men action movies. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to watch something different. So I had seen some folks that I follow on Letterboxd who I generally have similar tastes in film to... Liked this movie a lot, and then it had recently come onto some kind of streaming site. I don't remember which one. So we watched the 2022 film Nanny. It's classified as a drama horror thriller, although I want to talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Directed and written by Nikitu Jusu, and this is her first film, or her debut feature film. Oh, really? Yep. Stars Anna Diop as a- Aisha, Michelle Monahan Yeah. as Amy. Sinequa Walls as Malik and Morgan Spector as Adam. The synopsis immigrant nanny Aisha, piecing together a new life in New York City while caring for the child of an Upper East Side family, is forced to confront a concealed truth that threatens to shatter her precarious American dream. A nice synopsis. <laughs> I picked this movie because I just wanted to watch something that was a little less White loud, <laughs> a little less sci fi fantasy cinematic universe um and and quiet things down and ground things a little bit more i was kind of craving that a little bit after lots of star wars lots of marvel Mm -hmm. (laughs) um what did you think of nanny
1: yeah i uh so i hadn't heard of this one at all so it wasn't on my radar i knew nothing about it but i found this so compelling and it had such a quiet unease Mm -hmm. throughout the entire runtime And again, knowing nothing about it, just added to that edge of my seat sort of feeling throughout the whole thing.
0: I mean, I would say I knew very little about it, too. I hadn't watched a trailer. I Mm -hmm. just had seen people giving it high ratings on Letterboxd that I follow. And I was like, all right.
1: Right. But for a debut feature film, it's really strong.
0: Yeah. It's one of those ones that it just makes me so excited for whatever she's going to do next. Now that she has people's eyes on her and like she's on people's radar and perhaps can get more funding and just more of the stuff she needs to make the film she wants to make. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what she makes next. In terms of calling this a horror film, Mm -hmm. because it is like when you go to IMDb, when you go to Letterboxd, when you go to Wikipedia, horror is what it's classified as. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that?
1: I don't I don't think that. It is horror forward. I would put suspense or thriller.
0: It's more of a psychological thriller.
1: Yeah, I put it there before I would go horror. Um, yeah, I, I think psychological thriller is the is the right description of it because there's nothing inherently horror-forward about it? Like, you're in your head a lot through it, hence a psychological thriller.
0: I mean, it is definitely within the umbrella of what can be horror. I think when I look at this, though, and I think of how horror audiences can react when they go to see something that's being marketed as horror and talked about as a great horror film, and then they watch it and they don't feel like it was a horror film, how Mm -hmm. that can actually hurt a film.
1: Yeah, because, I don't know, maybe I'm generalizing and maybe you have a thought on it, but I feel like when you just blatantly kind of label something as a horror film, people's first reaction can be, okay, is this going to scare me? Yeah, Or how much is this going to scare me? And that's kind of just the default attitude that a lot of us go into movies with when it's called a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like having that sort of... Mindset going into this film would, yeah, it kind of be similar to the marketing campaign around the village.
0: Well, and I was thinking of so The Eternal Daughter, which we saw recently, and it was one of our favorite films of 2022, isn't classified as horror. But if Nanny is horror, then I think The Eternal Daughter is horror. And, yeah. and I personally think they're both kind of on the fringes of what horror is. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of talk online when people misclassify Eternal Daughter as horror and then people are like, no, 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 don't go into it thinking it's a horror film or you're not going to like it. Yeah. It's not a horror film. It's got some psychological elements and it's got some tension and it's got some of that, like, Eternal Daughter's more um, on the fringes of gothic horror. Yeah. Whereas this is more on the fringes of perhaps a more traditional horror. Yes. Um, But they're both really just on the outer edges of it such that... It could hurt the film if someone mm-hmm. thinks it's a horror film and then they come away being like, I didn't like that because yeah. it wasn't scary. Mm-hmm. So I would say to anyone who's maybe interested in seeing it and I think it's worth seeing yeah, that it's not a horror film. It's more of a psychological thriller with some like horror adjacency.
2: Yeah.
1: like Don't go into it thinking you're going to see Smile.
0: <laughs> no. Because <laughs> it's
1: not going to be that at all.
0: Not even a little bit. But yeah. in terms of getting back to the film itself... I was really impressed with all the performances.
1: I think that this whole film is anchored by the incredible performance from Anna Diop as Aisha. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, she was electric. Mm-hmm. And like so so amazing. And you just felt anything she was feeling, you felt that along with her. And she pulled you into that through her performance, which I thought was really awesome.
0: It's one of those films, and I, I personally am a big fan of, These types of narratives, particularly in like the psychological thriller or horror-esque genre um, where we don't know if we can trust our protagonist and her interpretation of what's happening, Mm -hmm. like where we've got this unreliable perspective and yet we are still rooting for our protagonist, right? Um, And that's definitely a part of this of how much of what we are seeing is what's really going on. Um and I really enjoyed that and it really heightened the tension. Yes, you were like, this is such a tense movie, <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> yeah. so so on edge. Um, I also thought it was beautifully lit.
1: Mm-hmm. That added to it feeling also very intimate. Like, yeah, it felt very personal. Like it, like I said, Anna pulled me into the character of Aisha, and then all of the shots and the lighting just made me feel like. I was wrapped up in everything she was feeling and everything that she was going through, and it wouldn't let me go. Which, it, I mean, in turn, the things that are happening won't let her go. Yeah. But then there is that shroud of mystery you're talking about, where it is everything that we're seeing reliable, mm-hmm. and hence why I was on the edge of my seat and felt tense in my chest <laughs> the whole time.
0: So I, I really enjoyed this and I'm so 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 excited for what uh, the director does next I did find the ending a little disappointing Yeah. Um, when I read a little bit more about how people have interpreted the ending and there's not a lot out there because it's a fairly new film and I don't think it's been seen as much as it perhaps should and could Right. um, I was like oh I do appreciate what's trying to be said with the ending but it happens really really fast Mm -hmm. and it Considering the rest of the movie lingers and is really slow, Mm -hmm. um, it was a bit jarring to have this really quick sequence of events and then be like, oh, I'm not totally sure how I meant to understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, Minor quibble. Yeah. And I think that there's so much room to make one of my favorite horror films ever or one of my favorite psychological thrillers ever (laughs) in whatever... Nicky too juicy does next.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't the ending did not obliterate the experience that no. I had leading up to it. Um, nor did it enhance it.
0: So much of horror though can hinge on that ending, right? You can be mm-hmm. feeling pretty like neutral about a film and then the ending makes it one of your favorite things you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Or you can be really liking a film and the ending of a horror. I mean the ending of anything, but I find particularly in horror, horror adjacent films it can totally destroy what you liked about the movie and you come away being like, I'd never watch that again. Mm-hmm. This, it's like, oh, there's so there's so much actually really great about that ending. It just happens so fast. Yeah. And I wish that they had spent more time with it and lingered on it a little bit more. And yeah. also just personally, there's like some things with me in particular where I'm like, oh, I'm not gripped by the choice they made narratively there yeah. based on how I... Interpret and value things in my world, if that makes sense. I can't say anything more; (laughs) it would spoil it.
1: No, I I agree with that, and I I think that it's still worth like if you like psychological thrillers, highly recommend checking this one out. Um, because I feel like the ending is definitely subjective and can hit people differently. Yep, but um, I still think it's worth taking the journey. Regardless. And also I wanted to note um that Anna Diop, her performance, not only the performance is incredible, but man, the the hair, makeup, and wardrobe departments on this film, chef's kiss. Yeah. Like they made everything that they put together for Anna Diop in this, gorgeous. Yeah. It's is so incredible. So if the if the story's not gripping you. Hair, makeup, wardrobe.
0: And I also feel like they did some really clever, subtle stuff about what she wears in her personal life versus what she wears on the job. Yeah. And I I think there was so much to mine there mm-hmm. that is done in a really subtle way. And I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really liked it. Yeah. How'd it make you feel?
1: So compelled and drawn in by Anna Diop's performance. And I would, that alone, I think is reason enough that I'd want to return to this movie at some point down the road and kind of see if now knowing the ending and how the story shakes out, if I'd feel differently about it. How about you?
0: Made me really tense and really on edge. What more can I ask from a film like this? Yeah. Yeah, I was really, really pulled in
1: psychologically thrilled i
0: was psychologically <laughs> thrilled
1: all right bouncing back to me mystery movie pick number two
0: three mystery movie picks in a week it's been ages
1: <laughs> truly um i chose the 2022 drama causeway it was directed by Leela nugenbauer and written by otessa Moshfeg, uh gobel and elizabeth sanders Who's the writer that you're familiar
0: with? Atessa Moschvig. She's a literary writer. Like She writes books.
1: Now, you didn't know that she wrote this. Like You no. came up at the end, you're like, holy shit. How did I not know <laughs> that?
0: I'll talk a little bit more about that later, yeah.
1: Um, it stars Jennifer Lawrence as Lindsay, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, Paperboy himself as James, and uh, Jane Howdeshell as Sharon, as well as Linda Emmond Ed- uh, as Gloria. Synopsis is, a U.S. soldier suffers a traumatic brain injury while fighting in Afghanistan and struggles to adjust to life back home. This is the first of two military military movies that we watched this week. Very unlike us. Un, 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 like, not intentional, but it just happened. What would you think of Causeway?
0: I was not as keen on watching this movie as you were, like, you were ready to watch it like the week it came out and I was like "eh."
1: and then it started kind of getting
2: like m- like middling, middling reviews yeah
0: so then you were like i eh. actually I really liked this a lot yeah like much more than the middling reviews have given it I you know and and here's the thing it is 100% and nothing happens but the vibes movie which is my favorite type of movie yeah and as we're learning from the many people who have watched aftersun on our recommendation it's not everybody's favorite <laughs> type of movie
1: yeah we put out our best of the year post and this was number and aftersun was number 1 and a lot of people are like yeah i watched it on your recommendation cuz you guys kept talking about it yeah it was it was good
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you know i do think nothing happens but the vibes and yet i feel something incredibly emotional is my favorite genre of any art, whether it's literature, music. I don't know if music can be nothing happens but the vibes. But you know what I mean? Like there's just a quietness and a, an emotional core that I really, really love. Um, but if you don't like movies like that, you're probably not going to like this movie, which is okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like movies that love to let you just sit in the feelings.
0: Yes, And then they get often talked about as either being boring or slow or like nothing happened. And I'm like, and and this is also like very much a slice of life film, Mm -hmm. which I also love. I love (laughs) just being thrust into somebody's story and then being booted out of it. And we don't get a lot of before and we don't get any after, but we cover this. Portion of a person's life. I just really, 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 really love that. Yeah. Um. So I, yeah, I was really, really compelled by this, and I liked it so much more mm-hmm. than I ever could have predicted. I would. What about you?
2: I
1: yeah. I mean, I was very pleasantly surprised, especially just after hearing that this was and seeing that this was getting such middling reception. Um. That yeah this this it may i mean it was a relief but it also made me really happy because i'm with you the nothing happens but the vibes type of movies slice of life movies are also my jam and are typically what resonate with me the most emotionally um and let me kind of be clear about something i really only wanted to watch this for one reason and that was brian tyree henry because i love him (laughs)
3: yeah me I haven't
1: seen him in a lot of stuff. I mean, the only things I can think of are Atlanta, where he's amazing in that. He uh, does the voice of Miles' dad in Spider-Man into the, into the Spider-Verse. And now this.
0: And he's in the Turtles.
1: Right. Yeah. He was in that as well, which he was great in. I, I just find him so compelling. And he just has kind of like teddy bear energy a little bit, which I really love.
0: But I did like that he got to do something different here than in Atlanta, because Paperboy's a very particular kind <laughs> of character. Yeah. Um, And this is a totally different character than Paperboy. Um,
1: That's the kind of character I love in movies like this.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the two of them, I thought, had really, really, really good chemistry. And this movie, at its core, it was funny. I was telling Ashley about it and giving her a little bit of a, like, breakdown on the synopsis and I was like yeah and it's like Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry and she's you know has a TBI and has come back from the war and they kind of encounter each other and she's like and fall in love <laughs> and I was like actually it's not it's a it's a friendship movie like mm-hmm. you know I, I I don't I don't think that's a spoiler to say that this isn't a romance it's a, it's a movie mm-hmm. about friendship which I think we could use so much more of yeah in film about like the relationships and bonds that can be formed that, aren't
3: that romantic. are romantic
0: yeah, that aren't romantic. And you know what? It reminded me really interestingly, um, just the connection between the two of them reminded me a lot of this friendship that I had um before you and I reconnected when we were 19, but after I had graduated high school, there was somebody who I like kind of was friends with in high school, but we weren't that close. Um and He was really lonely post high school. He'd had a bad breakup and I was really lonely because my friends were all in college and I wasn't yet. And they had moved to the city and they were living in the dorms and they were going to the bars and I was still living at home in Leduc. And Mm -hmm. it just was a really tough time. And the two of us would just go and play pool together and we would like just hang out and visit and go for drives and never at any point was it anything but a friendship. And, at a certain point, we outgrew that friendship. We were very different people. Um, but we were both people who were really lonely and sad at a particular moment in time. And we bonded and connected. And that was important and needed. Mm-hmm. And I'm still really appreciative of that time that we were friends together, even though I haven't spoken to this person in, in forever because we just drifted apart. Um, and this film really captured that.
1: Yeah. I mean, similar kind of thing happened with us, but it did turn romantic. So <laughs> did we turn romantic?
0: We turned romantic. Oh we turned God. romantic pretty fast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
1: um, No. Yeah, that's. You're totally right. And I, I love that. And I start kind of when I watch films like this and there's these kind of friendships that develop. I always. Now I just kind of start getting nervous. I'm like, oh man, when's the other shoe going to drop and this is going to turn into romance? And when it doesn't, I'm I'm so happy about that because I think that you're right. Seeing really beautiful depictions of friendship on the screen, especially for movies like this, is so important and so needed just to kind of break the mold of the will they, won't they fall in love, whatever. Um, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to say to to Brian Tyree to Brian Tyree Henry. You know, much like Kihiquan in Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I think is just the prime example of what it means to be a, support, a supporting character that lifts up the main character. Um, and I think he does that in Everything Everywhere All at Once in its truest form. I feel the same about Brian Tyree Henry here. Like Not only is he a really strong character on his own, but he is there in service to Jennifer Lawrence's character without losing sight of himself and his morals. And I I think it's one of the strongest, best supporting uh, performances of 2022.
0: It won't be nominated.
1: Unfortunately, but should be.
0: On another note, do you want to know what they were originally going to title this movie? Because I really like the title, Causeway. I think it's a really, really... I, I, Great title.
1: I like it too. And its it's ties are interesting.
0: Yeah, it's one of those, you know, I, I talked to my creative writing students about this a lot. Like, and, and it was interesting. One of my students, I, I think I said, like, you know, you can do a title for a story or a text of some kind, like Macbeth. It's about Macbeth and it's titled Macbeth. I said, or it can be something more symbolic and you have to kind of try and figure out why it's titled that. And I couldn't think of something in the moment. This was years ago and the student was like, like Hereditary. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's a great example, like Hereditary, where in the end you have to kind of be like, why was it called Hereditary? Mm -hmm. And I think this title, Causeway, does that, right? Like, why is it called Causeway? And Mm -hmm. it's a really, I think it's a really beautiful metaphor within the film. Mm -hmm. But do you want to know what it was originally going to be titled? Yeah. Yeah. Red, white, and water.
1: Oh Christ! <laughs> That's so dumb. It's a
0: really bad title. Yeah, I'm glad they nixed that because that is an absolutely. I would not have watched a movie called Red, White, and Water.
1: That's like a good, you know, working title. Like, just we need to title it something. Um, my God,
0: because there is a lot of water. There's definitely like a water sim, water motif, like the contrast between water and heat If i was teaching this movie we would look at um but i'm
1: gonna chuck that up to a working title because i would not have watched this if it was called that that is some hallmark hammy shit
0: (laughs) yeah it probably would have been picked up by a different distributor had different actors
1: (laughs) would not have been an a24 thing red white and water so
0: (laughs) freaking bad now let's talk about the Otessa Moshfegh of it all because I didn't know that until the title card came up at the end and I'm not gonna like call myself a huge fan of hers because I've only read two of her works. I read her short story collection "Homesick" from a home, "Homesick for Another World." Um, great title, and the cover art is she has great cover art for her 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 books. Um, and Homesick for Another World was really hit and miss. It's a short story collection. And those tend to be, right? Like I'd really like one story and then I'd really not like another. Um, and then I read her book, uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is pretty popular um, and pretty divisive because um, some folks in in my book club, they I think it's um, our friend Cassandra who's in, who's in our book club and who we... Want to get on this show at some point is probably listening right now. Hi, Cassandra. Hello. <laughs> uh, called it icky fiction, like a tessa Mushvig mm. writes icky fiction, <laughs> and like she kind of said, you know, you either like it or you don't. And we like icky movies. Like I would put Your Ghost, Lanthimos, in like the icky movie category, mm-hmm. which just makes you feel icky. I
1: like Lars, Lars von Trier. Yeah.
0: Right. It's got that vibe. And at some point, um, Yorgos Lanthimos has been attached to making a film version of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, although I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. And I was just like, what a match made in heaven for Mm -hmm. those two. Um, But I really liked that book and it is really icky. (laughs) Uh, So when I saw her name come come up at the end, I can see the threads Of her in Mm. this. And um, there was one thing in this film that you really didn't like. And I'm like, that feels like it came from her. Mm. Because she likes to push the limits of like, what are you comfortable seeing? And be like, but this happens in real life. Right. Um, And I, yeah, I was just like, whoa, how did I not know this? That's wild. (laughs) And then I promptly um, put a hold on her newest novel the library. Nice. There's like 18 people in front of me, but... Oh, damn. Yeah, I'll get <laughs> it eventually. i going to try not to buy $40 books. I'm only going to read once.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, since you mentioned it, yeah, there was only one moment in this film that did kind of throw me a little bit that I was kind of like, oh, man. But I feel, to what you said, too, it kind of does root it in reality a little bit, especially just between like what is going on with our characters at the time and... where they're at emotionally, where they're at in their friendship.
0: And life is messy and icky and we do things we're not proud of and, you know.
1: Yeah. I want to speak to the Nothing Happens But the vibes. Like this just gave me so many sort of shades of Koganada and his films and what he does. There's just like that quiet, introspective, emotional, contemplative sort of Air around his films. And there's
0: this lingering,
1: yeah. And I felt, I felt that here, which is why I'm happy we revisited after Yang this week because I just wanted to live in a sort of, in that sort of vibey world um, and style of filmmaking. And I, and I, and I felt that here. And the music helped with that too. The music by Alex Somers in this was so, so good.
0: There's a lot of really impressive scores in the movies we watched this week. I yeah. have to say, yeah. So that was the theme of the week, I think.
1: Yeah. But I also wanted to say, because we kind of had a bit of a chat about this after the film ended, we've had a bit of a weird history with Jennifer Lawrence, because Jennifer Lawrence was, I felt she was awesome in this. Yeah, she I, was really great. And I think overall, Jennifer Lawrence is a really great actress. Like, She won the Oscar for Silver Linings, which I think we, we both liked. Um,
0: yeah, I saw it a really long time ago, so I just don't feel I can speak to it. But I remember yeah. liking it, but not loving it.
1: Yeah, and I remember specifically liking her in it, and like I really, I really thought that she was compelling. I loved watching her do the the goofy Jimmy Fallon bits, and I liked her interviews and stuff. And then I feel I was trying to kind of think of my journey with it, and I feel like it's a bit of a Chris Pratt effect, where I've I really liked Chris Pratt like when he was doing Parks and Recreation and he was doing some more of that stuff and like even maybe early Guardians kind of stuff. But he's just like turned into such a douchebag non nonsense. He's everywhere to try to sell tickets and I hate it.
0: Interesting though, because I feel like the world still loves Chris Pratt and I feel like the world turned on Jennifer Lawrence. Like I feel like there was sexism in the turn from we love her to we hate her and I feel like with Chris Pratt by and large people still love him
1: yeah and that's where I kind of like when I was thinking about it I'm just like it's not really fair that I feel that way about Jennifer Lawrence because she hasn't really done anything to make me feel that way except (laughs) for the perception of her in the culture yeah I feel has turned against her because I watched Chris
0: Pratt has done some things and has some beliefs that don't align with us yeah
1: like drives me crazy and like I recently watched a actress uh round table and she was a part of it and she was just like really thoughtful in some of the things that she said and what she added to the conversation there and i'm just like i i still quite like jennifer lawrence and i think that like like you said too I we even love her in the hunger games movies she's a great actress
0: i think jennifer lawrence is maybe perhaps more connectable, that's not a great word, but to Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson than to Chris Pratt for me Yeah, in that um, because Mm. she has been so successful both in blockbuster films like The Hunger Games and in awards films like Silver Linings Playbook, people have a tendency to discount the work that she does. Yeah. Um. And I find the same thing happens with Robert Pattinson, where people are like I don't want to watch anything he's in, or Kristen Stewart when they've proven themselves to be good actors that take on interesting roles. Mm. Um. And I think we we now are recognizing that about Jennifer Lawrence, and perhaps will not be so stinky about her moving forward.
1: Well, and I think we've realized that. I, I feel like you know this is kind of the unique thing where they came up in a world where they're turning these well liked book series into stuff. You know, between t- Twilight and Hunger Games. And then there's this, I feel like there's maybe this unspoken but inherent, they have to now prove themselves as good actors after that.
0: But they have and people are still being douches to them. Yeah,
1: in spades. Like, I feel like Robert Pattinson has broken the white boy um, demographic by being in the Batman and being good in the Batman. And I feel like Christian Stewart has done it in spades. Like, she's an she's an incredible actress and... And I feel like, and so is Jennifer Lawrence. I can totally see these people, you know, when you equate them with like the Susan Sarandon's or the Julia Roberts or like anything like that, you can totally see them being incredible now and then being incredible playing like moms and grandmothers, like way down the road in their career.
0: I think Robert Pattinson is going to be like a Willem Dafoe. He's going to make yeah. weird, weird movies till he dies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he was the young person in the lighthouse and then he's going to be the, the old person, person in, in the, the lighthouse. lighthouse. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. No, I was pleasantly surprised with this film and really, really liked it. And I, w- I would probably revisit it in the future because when I want to get into those vibes, make it a double feature. Throw it on this and then throw on After Sun.
0: And then Petite Mama and then After Yang,
1: And then Columbus. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, now it's next year. <laughs>
1: um, how did it make you feel?
0: It, I, I didn't talk about this much, but it made me feel really sad. Yeah. Like I had to pee at one point and I said, I feel really sad. Yeah. <laughs> when we paused the movie, um so even though I didn't speak about that, it's a really 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 sad movie. And yeah. it's sad the whole way through, and it made me feel really heavy, and it felt very real. Like it connected me to the own, my own heaviness and sadness I've had in my own life, particularly at times of loneliness. Yeah. Um so mm. I think that's a good maybe like caution to put on about like if you are going to watch this movie think about where you're at emotionally and if you want to like revisit times of heavy sadness because I, I think this is a tremendously heavy sad movie even though I really loved it
2: yeah it, it's funny yeah,
1: we didn't talk about it but that's exactly what I have heavy slash sad in the way that I like
0: yeah yeah I, I I like it I like revisiting sadness but not all the time right like sometimes yeah. I'm like I just interestingly we we chose to rewatch fresh and after Yang this week because we've covered them on the show before um so we're not covering them again and we were originally going to watch after yang on friday night and then we both kind of looked at each other and we're like nah let's watch fresh like mm-hmm. we weren't in the right headspace for that quiet sad movie yeah so you know yeah even though i really like it some days i'm like i don't have the bandwidth to feel this heavy and this sad
1: mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's from the music, it's from the vibes, but it's all, like like we've been saying, the performances convey that really, really well. Yeah. So if heavy sad is your jam, this should be your jam.
0: Yeah. Now we start going to the theater. Yes. We did three mo- mystery left, picks.
1: Left the house. <laughs>
0: and now we go see three movies in the theater. So the first one is we saw Being John Malkovich, which we had both seen before, but I think just once each and it was a long, long time ago. That's right. This is a 1999 movie, and I didn't write the genre down. Do you have the genre? Uh, comedy. Uh, comedy. Uh,
1: comedy drama fantasy.
0: It's a comedy drama fantasy. It's directed by Spike Jones, his feature film debut. That true? Yes, I believe. Let me double check. And written by Charlie Kaufman, and I believe this was his first feature film as well.
1: Jeez, all right. Um, didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, that is. Pretty impressive, I must say. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the
3: nitty gritty. -gritty.
0: Um, It stars John Cusack as Craig Schwartz, Cameron Diaz as Lottie Schwartz, Catherine Keener as Maxine Lund, and John Malkovich as John Horatio Malkovich. (laughs) Synopsis, a puppeteer discovers a portal that leads literally into the head of movie star John Malkovich. That's a great synopsis. So I don't remember at all the first time I saw this, but I know I have seen it. Mm-hmm. And we own it on Criterion. Mm-hmm. So we yeah we decided to go see this in the theater and we saw it with two former students of mine who are now friends of the show. And that was really, really fun to see it with um, some folks who had never seen it before, but also made me very acutely aware of some of the language and <laughs> yeah. 1990s, early 2000 jokes in the film where I'm mm. like, ugh, yikes. Um, what would you think of revisiting being John Malkovich?
1: Yeah, what I will say is it is really, I mean, you get this from the synopsis, but it is very unique and ridiculous uh, in premise unlike many films I've seen before. You know I feel like there's there's not a lot of films that are willing to go this ridiculous like I feel like everything or like everything that the Daniels do is kind of like that, like they like to revel in the ridiculous to tell a larger emotional story and I think that that this is what this is doing here, and I mean you know incoming there's there's quirky Kaufman characters in here too, mm-hmm. which he's kind of become infamous for but Despite all that, it unfortunately suffers from the humor, jokes, and even plot points that are firmly rooted in the latter 90s, early aughts that just don't really stand the test of time and actually kind of derailed my enjoyment of the film.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And it, you know, I would have felt that way even if we weren't seeing it with some very smart, very caring younger people. Yeah. But I definitely heightened it to be like, oh man, I brought them to this movie that's using that language. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I didn't. I honestly didn't remember a single thing about this film. Mm, I did not remember how sexual it is. Yeah. Um, it's a very horny movie. Very. Um, and I definitely didn't remember that kind of some of the um jokes it chooses to say many many times. And and it's totally a product product of its time. If I had seen it in 1999. I mean, probably at nine years old, I was a little too young for it. But if I had been watching this when I was like 13, 14, 15, I probably would have thought those jokes were hilarious, unfortunately.
1: Well, I think that I saw this when I was kind of starting to discover more and more kind of culty films when I was in high school. Saw it once, loved it. Then that's why we own it on Criterion, because when it came on Criterion, I was like, oh, yeah, got it by being John Malkovich. Yeah, and
0: I must have really liked it, too. I have a feeling I probably watched it because I loved Eternal Sunshine.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Eternal Sunshine came first, too, for me. Yeah,
0: prob- probably. And I heard it didn't come out till later, so I don't think it was a Spike Jones thing. Mm-hmm. It does make me a little scared to revisit Eternal Sunshine. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I liked it a lot. As a teen and a young adult. Um, Um,
1: Yeah, we kind of talked about our complicated feelings with Charlie Kaufman recently because he did uh, Netflix's I'm Thinking of Ending Things,
0: which I was so excited about. And then, I mean, and, you know, I'm thinking of ending things and this and I'm sure Eternal Sunshine have kind of that central there is a man, a white man who loves a woman and she doesn't love him back in mm-hmm. the way that he wants. Yeah. And that's kind of the main focus of it. And I think I've outgrown that story. Yeah. I think there was a part of me, you know, that's, I'm um, sorry, I was about to say Eternal Sunshine again. That's 500 Days of Summer. Yes. On the on the more comedy end of, or more indie end of things, right? Less alternative. Yeah. I don't know. There's more like alternative. That's more indie. I don't know if those are correct terms, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's a part of me that's just sick of hearing that story. Yeah. I want Kate Winslet's point of view. I want
1: Jesse Buckley's. Well, we do get her point of view, and it still yeah. comes across the same way.
0: So yeah, it's a, that's a little tricky. But take that part as not the central part, and start focusing on the being John Malkovich of it. And I love this still. Mm-hmm. It's still like so zany and so. It's. It seems like the type of film that could only be either your first film or one after you're so established that you can take risks. Yeah. So either like, well, I've got nothing to lose, so I'm just going to make the film I want to make. Or I'm going to make the film I want to make because I have the clout and the money and the resources to make the movie I want to make. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Kaufman. Refused to make this movie with anyone other than John Malkovich as the lead person, (laughs) and I guess like many, there was many offers to finance and produce it without him. Like they wanted Tom Cruise or they wanted so and so. I mean, it makes sense. Like who is John Malkovich? And he's like, nope, it's John Malkovich, or I'm not doing it. Um, And even John Malkovich was like, I really like it. I'll help produce it, but I don't think it should be me. And he was like, no, it should be. And I guess eventually they wore him down over time, and yeah, and John Cusack, um, I guess he said when he read the script, he thought it was the craziest, most unproducible script that he could find, and he wanted to be in it hmm. <laughs> um yeah, just totally bonkers the actual like concept behind it,
1: yeah, it's so- it it is such a unique story and it's so bizarre it's it's humor when it's when it's working for me personally is really on point and really good and i i love the zane zany is a great word
0: there was some pretty it was a pretty big audience and there were some people who were laughing real hard howling just like (laughs) really really into it yeah um and i get how like if this was like your favorite movie when you were a teen young adult, even like mid-20s seeing it in the theater would be so awesome Mm -hmm. um and everybody like is completely into it. Like I really like Catherine Keener. I think she's really great.
1: She's very babyly in this.
0: Oh yeah, and then the fact that they make Cameron Diaz not be babyly. She still is very attractive, but like they mm-hmm. do their best to make her kind of like dowdy. Um,
1: I quite like her character in this. <laughs> Just
0: wacky. Yeah. But uh, John Cusack looks so gross in this. That haircut, I tell you.
1: I'll I'll say in a movie full of very unlikable people, Cameron Diaz is the most likable person. Agreed. Yes. Or
0: John Malkovich, poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) I feel real bad for him. Yeah. (laughs) Or I guess the, uh, nah, John Cusack's boss is a a bad guy. Yeah. Can you guess how many times John Malkovich is said in the movie?
1: Is it? John Malkovich or Malkovich? Just- you know
0: what? IMDb trivia didn't specify.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to encompass every time the word Malkovich is, is said. And I'm going to say 169 times.
0: 130. Oh. Over 130. They didn't do an exact count, I guess.
1: Uh, lo- real loose with it. Yeah,
0: a little lukewarm on that one. Um, it's a fun movie, but watching it now as one that I'm not... So attached to from a nostalgia perspective, mm-hmm. I don't think I need to revisit it ever. Yeah,
1: again. if I could swap us owning that on Criterion for like Sound of Metal or Tampopo, that would be great. <laughs> um, but you mentioned you kind of mentioned this after we were talking, and I was thinking about it, and you're totally right. Where I feel like this feels like a precursor to her, like it feels like this walks so that her could run because you saw shades of it. And the things that Spike Jones likely pulled from what was kind of happening in being John Malkovich, that was that were working into the the her narrative a little bit. But what's
0: interesting is that he wrote her.
1: Yeah, so he's just stealing from Charlie Kaufman. Just
0: kidding. Yeah, his only <laughs> Spike Jones's only writing credits are for her, where the wild things are, which I found personally disappointing. And then all the jackass movies.
1: <laughs> Incredible.
0: <laughs> Everything else is only. So he directed, being John Malkovich, he directed Adaptation.
1: Yeah, I mean, John, Spike Jones is definitely somebody that likes to have a lot of fun in his films and he mm-hmm. can create some really great visuals and mm-hmm. and and likes to kind of relish in those. And I find them really compelling. I, I haven't seen all of his films, but I I like what he brings to the table. Um yeah, th- I, I agree with you. I I think that there is something in the the zany brilliance of the premise of this film, but it's not something that's going to stick with me long term.
0: But I think it would if we had really loved it when we were younger. Because yeah. I totally get why it's on Criterion, and I get why it's so many people's favorite films. But because we don't have that attachment to it, it's easier for us to be like, yeah, you know what, considering the white guy of it all, considering the, the like, punching down jokes, it's just not one that we're going to, like, revere. Yeah. But there are certainly other movies that you and I love because we loved them when we were younger that make similar jokes and we give them passes that we aren't giving to this. Yeah. So I think it. A lot of it can be about, like, what did you love when you were younger? And there is so much brilliance in this, and it is so impressive. And I think that so much of this has influenced many, many films that are our favorites. Yeah. And without the zaniness and the determination to keep this film as bizarre as it was written to be, we might not have some of the films that we have and love today. Yeah. And I'm appreciative of that, even if it's not going to be one that I now regularly put in the rotation.
1: Yeah, that's well put. I agree with that.
0: How does being John Malkovich make you feel?
1: It, it made me feel like my enjoyment bubble was popped early on and I struggled to get it back. Um, but I like what you just said where I, I think that it does sit in this very important spot amidst f- filmmaking after it came out that inspired a lot of ideas that might have not otherwise been there had this not come out. Mm-hmm. What about you?
0: Yeah, it makes me really glad for how film has become more diverse um, and that there are other voices telling stories, but it also makes me very appreciative of the art that has led the way, even yeah. as it is now surpassed.
1: Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, I felt this way before. I feel it. I feel it now. I, I would like to revisit Eternal Sunshine now.
0: I'm just nervous. I re- it really meant a lot to well, me.
1: That's just it. Like th- that's the film that yeah. is would has that sort of nostalgia wrapped up in it. And I'm I'm wondering if that's gonna like paint our lens of it or if it's gonna be really difficult when we realize it's not as good as we remember it or being. Or maybe it is as good as we remember it being. Yeah. Uh I'm uh I'm ready for it. Okay. The next movie. This was a double feature. So we saw Beangel Malkovich. And then we stuck around to watch the 2022 drama The Inspection. It is written and directed by Elegance, Elegance Bratton. Great fucking name. Yeah. Um, and stars Jeremy Pope as Ellis French, Gabrielle Union as Inez French, Bokeem Woodbine as Laws, Raul Castillo as Rosales, and uh, Iman Esfandi as Ismail. Synopsis is, a young gay black man rejected by his mother and with few options for his future decides to join the Marines, doing whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would cast him aside. So this is the second military movie that we watched this week.
0: Second military A24 movie that we watched this week. That's
1: right. What did you think of the inspection?
0: This was hard to watch. Yes. So... I will say I'm not somebody who typically wants to watch a military movie mm-hmm. um, or a war movie. When I think too much about war, I feel really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I... Having watched Causeway and then watched this, this feels more like a military movie. Yes. Whereas Causeway... You know, it's only about the aftermath of um the military, and so much of what Causeway does, I actually found similar to some of the work that was done in the um latter seasons of This Is Us, mm. with the characters of Uncle Nicky and um their friend. I can't remember her name in the show.
2: Oh yeah, damn it!
0: But I really, I thought that that was handled really, really well in This Is Us, and it kind of opened the door for me to be like, oh, I'm. You know, I typically don't want to watch military stuff just because it makes me so upset.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and this one was more like that, where I was just like, this is really hard to watch. I'm really upset by this. Yeah. Um, what about you?
1: Yeah, that's kind of the word of the day when it comes to this. I was so upset for the majority of it. And it just, it had me leaning in, not from a point of, this is compelling, i mean it's it's really well done it's really well executed it's super well acted jeremy pope is incredible in this like he's electric but just like leaning in for oh my god like what's coming next like yeah. w- like is there is this going to let me let me down in um not in a disappointment way but in just a like you've picked me up on my shirt collar when am i going to when are you going to yeah. let me down cuz you feel like you feel like you're just going through it with Jeremy Pope's character. Um, and it just, it tells a very difficult narrative about family, about love and belonging, as well as the military. And you just feel all of that at once.
0: Yeah. It's really mucky. Yeah. Jeremy Pope was in Pose.
1: Who was he in Pose?
0: Risto. He's in the final season. I think he's um, like a new member of like the family oh okay um highly recommend pose if you haven't seen it yeah really good especially seasons two and three um and then raul castillo is from one of our favorite shows of all time
1: i love when this guy
2: shows up
0: (laughs) um (laughs) because he's our favorite character in one of our favorite shows of all time is looking one of your favorite shows of all time love looking i would love to re-watch that um if you haven't seen hbo's I think it's two seasons and a movie mm-hmm. Um, looking and you are okay watching gay stuff, which I think if you listen to our show, you probably are highly recommend looking. It's very, very good. Yeah. Um, HBO's answer to queer as folk, I think. Yeah. And I like it. I've watched both, but I like looking. Um, One of my absolute favorite shows of all time. And Raul Castillo is a or Raul Castillo is a really, really phenomenal presence whenever he's in something there is a warmth to him i'm sure he's played a nasty character somewhere but between his character of richie and looking and his character in this it's just such a gem
1: mm-hmm. yeah and also i'll just add that looking has one of my all-time boy favorite boy crushes which is jonathan groff
0: you like him most as Kristoff.
1: <laughs> that's not
3: true <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, you like him most as the king in Hamilton.
1: <laughs> yes, definitely that.
0: That's when you want to kiss him the most. <laughs> yeah. Now I think you like him most as Patrick from looking. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm glad
3: we circled <laughs> back around.
0: But you do kind of have a crush on him in real life, too, I think, like in interviews, like yeah. as Jonathan Groff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did at Zachary Quinto, eh?
2: Yeah.
0: Siler himself.
2: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: Um yeah, but yeah, no, Raul Castillo. I forgot he was in this. Like I I I knew from I watched the trailer, I knew he was in it and then I forgot and then when uh when he showed up on screen, I was like, yeah, nice. Um
0: The film itself though, I think it's hard to come away and say that you like this movie. It feels more like it's just perhaps an important watch. Yeah. And that it's a narrative that and 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 stories that like need to be told. So um elegance Bratton, it's mostly based on his life story. Although he's talked about how he, you know, spoke to other people who were in a um similar position as him as being like a gay man in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And he kind of brought in some of their experiences as well to to tell kind of a multitude of stories. But I think the core of it and particularly the relationship between um Ellis and his mother. Does come from Elegance Bratton's own life story. It's a hard story, not just his experience in the military, but also his experience with his mother um, and his experience. He starts the film as a homeless, like a, a man who's experiencing homelessness, and he goes to the military to try and make himself proud, make his mom proud, and find like some sense of purpose and belonging. And this film really looks at like what happens when we don't have options. Mm-hmm. Like what what are the options when there are no options? And it's a really really complicated watch. Like this film doesn't easily say this bad, this good. Yes. And it doesn't easily say this right, this wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that that's really impressive. That mm-hmm. it doesn't come away saying like the military is a piece of shit, mm-hmm. or come away and say like a parent who abandons their child because they're gay is a piece of shit Mm -hmm. but neither does it say like but they're great too (laughs) it's just this mucky in between of like sometimes we find goodness and terribleness in the same space and sometimes we have love and hate in the same space and we cannot extricate those things from each other Mm mm-hmm and that makes this an even tougher watch then because it doesn't come away with ha- allowing us to either be like you know so many films that is like yes war is heroism or like no war is bad like a come and see versus like mm-hmm. a i don't know what's a like war is good movie we don't watch those oh. but i'm sure they exist where it's like yes the heroes and they feel good about it um this film comes away being like, here's just the, here's the reality mm-hmm. and it's not easy. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to think about it?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and that's exactly it is like, there's no definitive black and white that exists in any aspect in our character's life, but in real life as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to touch on that relationship uh, between uh Ellis and his mom inez like the the scenes between Jeremy Pope and Gabriel Union they just had me holding my breath and then when we get through some other scenes together i just feel like there's moments where it just deflated me mm-hmm. and obliterated me with the outcomes from some of the the scenes of them and the dynamics of their relationship and i and i felt that way too with just some of the things going on when once he entered uh, the boot camp. Yeah, it's um, it's another one that's uh, it's difficult to watch.
0: I was really surprised by the audience. It wasn't very busy, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of kind of
2: the same guy.
0: Yeah, who I interpreted to be about middle-aged men, mm-hmm. white middle-aged men, like they're by themselves. Yeah, there was like five or six, all,
1: and, I, and like all bald. <laughs>
0: They were all this, the same man. Uh, was it Malkovich? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did he come it to Malkovich? 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 <laughs> but it was a little, I was like, oh, do these men know what this movie is about? Like, are they, do they, did they just hear a military movie and show up? But I mean, none of them were on their phones or got up and laughed or so they must have known what it was about. And I was just judging them based on what they looked like. Um, but it was a very quiet theater, and it was a pretty small audience, and I think there was a heaviness felt throughout it. Um, Elegance Bratton has only made one other film, and it's a documentary. It's called Pure Kids, um, and it's, I think, very much looks through documentary at the life that um, the character of Ellis is living before mm. he joins the military. Um, and apparently that's a pretty hard watch too. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very focused on like queer and trans people of color, um, you know, and then sex work and HIV and that very difficult um, world. But also I think the joy that's found in like the family that's made, which is definitely what Pose is is looking at as well. Um, but Elegance Bratton does that through documentary. So mm-hmm. I hear that's a pretty impressive, but also tough film to watch like the film Nanny, it makes me, um, this film makes me excited to see what Elegance Bratton does next. Yeah. Because as a first um, feature fiction film, pretty impressive. Yeah. But uh, I I don't think it's one I want to revisit.
2: Yeah. But it's
1: it's the kind of storytelling that is really compelling and really, it just feels really honest. Um, Kind of in a similar way to like Moonlight. Like there's just like that, that heavy honesty that yeah. it, that exists in that film um, like in, in, in a much different way, but it, it it is compelling filmmaking and I agree. I'm excited to see what Bratton does next. Um, and also just to echo something we were saying earlier, the music here is incredible. This is another movie where they just hit it out of the park with the score. Like it was just very orchestral and the way that it would build or kind of, linger in scenes added to the overall experience feeling like very very emotional and very kind of draining at sometimes.
0: that was done by animal collective yes yeah
1: uh yeah this was uh this was a heavy one how did it make you feel
0: to echo what you just said it made me feel really heavy and at times like sick to my stomach yeah but it also made me appreciative of how it isn't trying to pull its punches and um, how it allows for the complexity of how the character of Ellis connects with the different characters and the different situations without being tempted to moralize things in a very concrete way. Mm -hmm. I was appreciative of that complexity because I think that's what real life is like.
1: Yeah. That's really good. I agree with all that. Yeah, it just made me feel gut punched. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was difficult. Like coming out of it, it was, I didn't give it a rating on Letterbox because I still find it difficult to assign a, a rating to it. Um, I liked it. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it, it won't be one that I revisit, but I'm glad that I've seen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right.
0: Final movie of the week um, is a documentary. Yeah, We saw the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Is that right? have 2 does?
1: It does because I was like, is that what it is? But that's what it is on the poster. Okay, yeah.
0: I'm like, well, did I just mistype that? All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, a 2022 documentary. Saw a lot of 2022 films um, this week. Hmm. It was directed by Laura Poitras and it features the artist and activist Nan Golden as kind of the key figure. There's also archival footage of David Armstrong, Cookie Mueller, and David Wajanowich. Um, And then it features members of the activist group Pain, Prescription, Addiction, Intervention, Now. Um, synopsis is, it follows the life of artist Nan Golden and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty who was greatly responsible for the opioid epidemic's unfathomable death toll. I honestly didn't know much about this movie, but like with Nanny, um, I saw that several people who I follow on Letterboxd had seen this and given it very high ratings. And I love a documentary. Mm. And Metro Cinema was playing it. So mm. I was like, I'd like to go and see it. So we did. What did you think of the beautifully titled All the Beauty and the Bloodshed?
2: I
1: mean, yeah, that title rips. It's great. But, you know, I just felt like like... What a personal and intimate look at an artist's life and what shaped them, and to do it through the lens that they did it through, it's so effective and artful, but also it's just if it, it was so personal and
2: beautiful
0: yeah, this documentary kind of looks at three separate things that intertwine by the end, so it looks at nan golden's personal story of her family and her sister Barbara her older sister Barbara it tells the story of like her artistic life Mm -hmm. um, and living through the 70s and 80s in New York and being a part of the queer scene and living through the AIDS crisis um, as like an activist and artist then as well Mm -hmm. and then it is kind of coalescing around the activism that she is engaged in now with pain specifically focused on like the um attempt to dismantle the sackler family's connection with the art world Mm -hmm. and all three of those were incredibly compelling stories and honestly i could have her like listen to more and more and more and seen more and more and more about any of them. But I think the film does a good job of intertwining them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And added on top of the fact that Nan herself is also an opioid addict, recovering addict. And then putting that through the lens of all the things that she's had to deal with and that she's gone through in her life and how that led her to founding pain and being such a prominent voice in pain and leading so many of their movements. Uh, it was, it was incredible. And then, yeah, when we got to the end of this film, like you had made a comment of like, you would want it to be a documentary filmmaker at one point, but, and, and that you'd make a good one because you are such an organized person. And I think that, that you would be great for that. But looking at all the archival footage and photographs and, all of the different you're trying to essentially encompass a person's whole life uh from when they were born till now who's lived a not just a long life but a very unique life full of so many different opportunities and lifestyle changes and location changes and 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 so many different friend groups and and whatnot, like there's there's a lot to explore and to showcase here, but I I thought that, you know, from a filmmaker perspective, that'd be a lot to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought I thought that they told the story so beautifully. I wasn't really familiar with Nan's work, except I I was more familiar with it than than I expected to be because when we took a trip to New York in 2016, she actually had a show. Was it at
0: the MoMA? Um, yeah, yeah. So I realized about. Kind of her most um, famous work is called The Ballad of Sexual Intimacy. And one of the things that really stuck with me from this film, which isn't a focus, but it's there in the background, is that Nan and her friends seem to live such fluid lives. Yeah. Like sexuality was fluid, gender was fluid, art was fluid. And I think that's really encompassed in her artistic work because The Ballad of Sexual Intimacy, which is this series of photographs and slideshows, is constantly changing Mm -hmm. like it says 1980 70 something Mm -hmm. to 2022 like it every year she adds more to it and takes things out and rearranges and it's not it's a living document right it's not ever finished and I think that's so cool and about halfway through the film I leaned over to you and I said I think we saw this Mm -hmm. I think we saw it in New York and I remembered specifically like several of the photographs kind of along a line on the on a wall that led into a room where the slideshow was playing yeah but we did moma in like what 45 minutes or <laughs> yeah. something like that it was about to close and we didn't have another night we could go and they were the people were like well we usually recommend 3 hours are you sure you want tickets and we were like yes
1: hold our beer
0: and so we just like sped through it but there's two parts in moma i remember really slowing down and not just trying to be like kate we saw moma and one was this. Yeah. And the other was they had um, Meat Joy, which is a video art piece that I studied in school that I think is really cool. Um, They had that playing on like an old TV. And those were kind of the two moments that I stopped and slowed down and really paid attention. Yeah. So, so interesting then to be like, oh, I do know her work and I had no idea who she was and I didn't know her history, but it really, you know, I saw it, we saw it six getting to be seven years ago and it's still stuck with me.
1: Yeah. I I really like her work, um, and that was that was what was so compelling too. Is like it seems like that's all that's always been the case with her is whenever she would do one of her slideshow, um, installations or performances or whatever they're whatever you want to call them, they would change every time. She would switch out the music that's playing in the background. She would change out the photos she would kind of gauge what the audience was responding to and tailor her next show to what was those responses would be. And she was constantly updating the collection and she continues to do that up until this day. But the way my, my highlight for the, what the film did to represent Nan's history and specifically those collections and those pieces of work were to just have the, the images isolated on screen, bordered by black And would just slowly go through them and have a voiceover from Nan over top of it. It really reminded me of what Mike Mills does Mm, in his films, specifically the film Beginners, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, there's just like this really quiet, contemplative nature to it. And then there's, it feels like it's, there's so much more historical and emotional backbone to what's being said when you're looking at stuff from the past as stills and especially the the way nan captures photos it just hits another emotional sort of beat for me when those sequences would happen and it was throughout the film when we would kind of be going through a lot of storytelling and then things would just calm down and we would just focus on her pieces of work with a voiceover from her And it felt so focused and so personal and intimate. Uh, Those were the highlights for me throughout the film. And I thought it was beautifully done.
0: Yeah. um, Nan Golden is one of those people who... I think I've probably talked about this on the show before, but I do, despite knowing that aging is a privilege, objectively and despite wanting to live a long life, I get really scared of aging. I get really bummed out when I like as I on my birthdays as I get older and then I see a person like Nan and I'm like no you can be badass and like (laughs) taking no shit and making a difference in the world as an older woman Mm -hmm. and she makes me feel like hopeful about being older and that like you can still be like badass and creative and doing new and important things at any age.
1: Well, I've even I've even felt that as getting older, especially like kind of entering a new decade, like as soon as you turn, turn, as soon as I turn 30, it's like I can let so many more things that I got hyper focused on in my 20s, I can let that go. Um, And I feel that just as you get older, you give less and less of a fuck about some of that superficial kind of stuff. And you just it allows you to become more badass. As you get older, because it's like, I don't give a fuck what anybody else says. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Man,
0: she seemed badass her whole life. (laughs) Yeah. Like, her work, her, like, her friendships, her work, her activism that she did her whole entire life was, like, a really big deal, and I'm surprised I didn't know her name more prominently because as it approached the part of the film where it talked about her art um, and her activism intersecting with AIDS activism mm-hmm. and with like the work that Act Up was doing I was like oh I actually know a lot of these people and I've a lot of these men mm-hmm. um and have studied their art and their literary work like I am very familiar with um David Wojnarowicz and I was just like oh how how have I not known Nan's name more prominently mm-hmm. um and I'm going to be you know carrying her work with me I think in my life as i move forward she's just she, she fucking rocks <laughs> yeah and this i think that this is a really important documentary um as a document of queer history and how that then is um intersecting and aligning with the important work being done about like the opioid epidemic right now um and i think the central line through all of this that connects you know her history the whole way through so with the way her sister was treated as a, as a young person with her um, commitment to like the queer community and AIDS activism in the eighties. And now is that like harm reduction is the approach we need to take. Yeah. Um, And that looks and, and means something different depending on what you're looking at, you know, looking at like mental health, looking at, um, sexually transmitted infections and looking at drug use like all three of those are different things and yet harm reduction is the through line Mm -hmm. and like this film is so thoughtful and important in how it talks about that and i just i think this is a really really important documentary that everybody should watch
2: yep i agree
0: and i'm really uh grateful to metro for for playing it it's Mm -hmm. probably done being shown by the time this episode airs but it it did say it was produced by HBO, so I imagine it'll be on Crave mm. soon-ish.
1: Yeah, I mean, if the title itself doesn't hook you, the story is telling well. I think so. so. It's
0: really really important, and so whether you've got a desire to learn more about like queer history and queer culture, or you want to learn about activism related to like the opioid epidemic, or whether you just like are really into art. Man. There's something for you here. <laughs> yes, I think, and which it, is inc- it's done really well,
1: which just speaks to just how incredible Ann Golden's life has been.
0: Well, there was a there was a hot minute when I was um, a research assistant for a professor that specifically does work around um, feminist art in New York in the seventies and eighties. So, like, I actually know a lot <laughs> about this time period in this specific location. Because I was doing that research assistant work for about two years mm. um, and was like very um, closely working with that professor and like helping her to um, look through the archival material and read other articles to then let her know if they were worth her time. I was kind of vetting that stuff to be whether it'd be useful for her project or not. So I know so much about this, even though I'm not typically someone who would. Mm. Uh, like like art is not my like key focus in things that that I've done in the school, um. So I was like, oh, I actually know a lot of these artists that they're showing on screen because I've done all this work, and I'm I'm really compelled by like feminist and queer art in New York during that time period, and and now that I can add Nan Golden to the list of people that I just really admire, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. How did all the beauty and the bloodshed make you feel?
1: just made me feel in awe of Nan yeah. and her story and the life that she's lived and inspired by the things that she's done and the, the important steps that she's taken to help not only herself but other people, the people immediately around her and then the people in the larger sense around her. It's Really incredible. How about you?
0: Um, it made me feel like you just said, both heavy and inspired. And I think that speaks to the brilliance of the title, right? All the beauty and the bloodshed. Like, life is really hard and life is really heavy and life is really complicated. And and like the inspection, I think this film is willing to go there with like, it's not that easy as right or wrong, as love or hate. Like, things are more complicated than that. Um, but it also f- like you made me feel really inspired that like we can have like hope and community and we can make progress even within all of the like heaviness and awfulness that is this world. Yeah. So like MVP to Nan, she seems completely amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: 100%. Okay. That was a lot of movies. Yeah. And a lot of them are really heavy. Yes. But let's talk about some bad dads and rad dads.
1: <laughs> all right. Bad dad of the week. Who's your
0: nominee? I'm going to nominate Craig Schwartz.
1: That was the same for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's uh, clearly the bad dad of the week. He is petulant, entitled. He acts without thinking. He's harmful. And the always bad dad trait, he's selfish.
1: Yeah, petulant's a good word. Um, he kind of made me feel or see uh, shades of my dad. Which were I get that. which uh you know, he's unhappy and then he feels like he deserves to be happy despite everyone else around him. Um and those important, quote unquote important in his life. Uh and then yeah, of course the dagger of being selfish. Uh I just think he's kind of a despicable human being. <laughs> so that's uh what puts him in the bad dad books for me. So yeah. Craig. Step off.
0: Get out of here. Go away.
1: Brad out of the Week. You go first? I chose James from Causeway.
0: Oh, okay. We have a different.
1: Um I chose James, played by Brian Tyree Henry, because he's supportive, he's caring, he he kind of knows his Boundaries within the relationship that he has with Jennifer Lawrence's character Um, and that he knows his imperfections and recognizes how he needs companionship. Um, He's still obviously working through things in his life, but he still desires companionship with another person. I think that's beautiful. How about you?
0: I picked May Parker.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Go on.
0: You always say that with, like, a but my choice is better tone. Uh, so I picked May, played by tome, Tomei, um, because I feel like as a parent, which she is, she guides Peter while leaving room for him to come to his own understanding when he needs to and in his own way. Um, and she supports and cheers for him even when it's tough. Um, like, I think about how in the middle of dealing with some, like, really tough stuff, she's also, like yes, let's get you into college, you know, because that's what you want and that's what's important to you. Um, She's incredibly empathetic, but also, like, doesn't let Peter off the hook when she thinks he's made bad choices. Like, she asks him to confront the choices that he's made. She asks him to consider, like, the weight of his actions and the consequences of his actions. And while she mostly gives him the space to come to those like understandings on his own when there isn't time for that. She makes sure that like she imparts what he needs to know. And I think like, what more can you ask from a parent than to be supportive and loving and empathetic, but also to call you on your bullshit and to like ask you to grow and challenge you to grow and and continue to be the best version of yourself that you can be.
1: Yeah. She even gets pushed by some people in this movie of her, Decisions that she's made as a as a parent to mm-hmm. Peter, and I feel like that doesn't really make her waver at all.
0: No, like no, that's another thing. She's steadfast in that, and she's confident in her ability to parent Peter. And and you know, and, like she got saddled with having to be a parent, mm-hmm. and she does that wholeheartedly. I even think about like <laughs> very early in the film. There's like a conversation about sex. And like she seems to be a great parent in terms of like a like she has a teenage boy and she you know the the very brief insight we get into how she parents him around that really complicated thing it seems like she's doing a great job of it and i just mm-hmm. find her as a character to be really impressive.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, i i think that she's going to take it. It just like makes me think like i feel like this is definitely the showcase and the highlight of Marissa Tomei as Aunt May in the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: Yeah, she's not just the archetypal sage, like she yeah. tends to be in some of the other versions. Mm-hmm. Um, like she is her own fully fledged badass character, and still is a really good parent.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: May Parker. Yeah, dad. dad.
2: Okay
1: rad wreck this week it's all about having some fun
0: yeah we watched a lot of really heavy movies and i find that there can be a bit of a like holiday post-holiday blues Mm -hmm. that a lot of us feel (laughs) is that
1: why we watch so many downers because we're feeling a little down maybe feeling
0: a little down um so good advice when you're feeling down is hang out with kids (laughs) (laughs) and like just go play with the kids i made an effort because i'm going back to work tomorrow um to see all of our nibblings before the time was out um i went bowling with the older ones and then we popped over to the house with the younger ones and you played a game of camping yeah with the four-year-old
1: yeah it was just a a crappy living room tent and just sitting under it
0: and like oh no we heard a noise what is it what's outside (laughs) the tent And then uh, and then I had to be a not nice bear that was coming to attack you campers. And (laughs) I just think when you spend time with kids, it helps you see like the importance of like the present moment and imagination and play and how we all need that regardless of our age. And there's just a I don't know. I, I love hanging out with the kids. I think that they're awesome. I
1: think I don't know if I said this on the show or not, but over the Christmas holidays, like when we were spending time with family. I I spent most of the time with the kids because it's way more interesting and compelling than sitting with the adults. The adult stuff is boring and I have to deal with that all day, every day. So I'd
0: rather I'm, go be a not nice bear.
1: Well, yeah. Or do you have <laughs> uh dancing with the stars competitions.
0: <laughs> with a triceratops stuffed animal. Yeah,
1: yeah. In the basement um with the kids than talking about just, <laughs> just the world that I have to live every day. Um, so yeah, if you have your own kids, if you have little nibblings, if you have, if you're an aunt and uncle in, uh, or some sort of relationship to like maybe your friend's kids, spend some time with them.
0: Get down on their level, play what they want to play. Even if it's a kitty.
1: That's the biggest thing is get down on their level. Kid. The, yeah. Kids have to, kids have to look up a lot. So it's sometimes it's nice to look at somebody who is bigger than them at the same eye level
0: yeah hang out with some kids um and also if you're gonna watch some heavy movies throw a spider-man in there or whatever your equivalent of spider-man is to break that up yeah
1: lovely well thank you all so much for listening we drop a new episode every thursday until then you can follow us and slide into our dms on instagram at baddad.raddad you can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts our usernames are in the show notes and we love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But that is going to do it for these two Spider-Mans this week. So until next time.
0: I'm Kylie and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad.